Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Welcome back, or well, you know, welcome each other back since we well, took a little bit of a hiatus there. We had a little bit of a summer break. I didn't go anywhere. You went up to the cottage. How are those uh, foxes? Well, you know, there are so many people around that, uh, you know, everyone always asks me, like, how are the foxes doing? And I think they're getting a little bigger, but we didn't have any sightings of the foxes, although I did see a vole, which is basically a hamster-like mole rodent that just doesn't see very well and just walked across my feet as I was standing there because they clearly don't see very well. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a new thing. People are going to start asking me about my vole. <laughs> All right. I'll remember next time to ask about your vole. Not nearly as cute as foxes, however. I don't think the vole should meet the foxes. No, no, no. I don't think that would be a happy no, meeting. For, would, probably not for the not, vole. Not for the vole. <laughs> um, well, we're back and there's so much to talk about. So oh, we, we missed so much over the last two weeks. We shouldn't take any, take any time off because everything happens when, uh, you know, you and I are not are looking the other way. Yeah. And uh, some weeks we're like, well, what are we going to talk about? And then we're away and there's things to talk about. One of which is the uh, seeing the, the the tail end of Jody Wilson-Raybould in politics. She announced she's not going to seek re-election uh, as an independent. I wonder if that's because she knows she it's very difficult to be elected as an independent. I think her star fell uh, quite hard and there probably any internal polling might've showed her that she doesn't have what it takes to, to re you know, to, to take the seat as an independent. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I don't think it's in, internal polling that there was actually a poll that was released on, on Twitter, on Twitter. And it wasn't, through Twitter, because those polls are useful. <laughs> that would be a but, great uh, poll, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was actually someone did some actual polling in her uh, riding of uh, Vancouver Grenville, and she was trailing the Liberal um, by by you know, by enough percentage points that uh, I think the writing was on the wall that she was not going to get reelected. Um, so I mean, I think you don't want to spoil your perfect record of being you know the the the, the great hope and uh, and the voice of, uh, of of truth and purity and all the rest and then get beaten in an election so better to leave and also i think oh, fundraising being, too well in being an independent uh, mp is is no picnic uh, because there's frankly nothing to do uh, no one to have lunch with um it's it you know you have no influence and my sense is that she really wants to be important and being an, an independent uh, mp is uh, is is not the path to uh, to importance in our parliamentary system so i think she's tired of that and you know so she you know she made a big do about uh, about leaving and about about how you know politics let her down how parliament let her down and oh like, yes because you know what it's full of politics and uh <laughs> it's like gosh imagine that the house of commons and in, in, in our parliamentary system is full of politics yeah and our that, political it, system is full of politics it's i i'm shocked i tell you shocked she is such a grandstander um she's i mean she, she will she, she will run towards uh, a nightlight as you know uh in order to get her her time in the spotlight she is uh, I, I never found her to be the most credible in the things that she claimed. She's somebody who recorded a colleague. Uh, there was just so many, and and I don't want to rehash what happened with her, but I found during that time that she was playing up a lot of victim victim uh, victimization narratives, uh, which I didn't think actually fit the circumstances. 
And I'll be glad to see her leave politics, but I'd be very surprised if we didn't hear from her again as the head of some agency or something of that nature. Oh, I'm sure. And she does have plans for, for continuing the struggle um, in, in her own words. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it isn't the, the last of her, but I think her star is definitely on the uh, on the wane. And, you know, I don't know if you saw there was a, a guest editorial or op-ed piece that Jane uh, Philpott had. I saw it in the Toronto Star and it's been online as well. And you know, it, it's a little bit cringeworthy because, you know, obviously the two of them were, were very prominent. Uh, you know, they... Uh, uh, Philpot resigned for reasons that are kind of unclear still to this day, but you know she was disappointed in the way that Jody Wilson Warrible was was treated, and she felt compelled to to resign at the same time. But she never really explained the direct connection between the two of them. But um, but Philpot wrote an article earlier this week that was published. I, again, I saw it in the Toronto Star, and quite frankly, it read like. Uh, a letter from a kid at camp saying how much they missed their best friend. Wow. Um, it was it was really a little cringy, uh, the way you know she talked about. Well, we'll see you back in politics again sometime in some greater capacity, no doubt. So um, there are still people who believe that Jody Wilson Raybould's uh, star will will ascend again. I think that I'm, she's, not, I'm not one of those, but you no, know, I think those. she's knifed too many people in the back, and I think. People recognize she's a, 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 back, a backstabber and they're not about to link their political fortunes to her. I think that she's toxic. And once she fulfilled her use to the opposition as a cudgel with which they could claim that Justin Trudeau was not supportive of women and not supportive of indigenous people, she no longer had a value that put her on the front page or on the front lines. And that was, that was the end for her. She was a means to an end for the opposition parties. And once that was accomplished, you know, it, it, when you chew a piece of gum, when the flavor's gone, you spit it out. Yep, yep exactly. And, you know, and speaking of, of backs that are full of knives, uh, Anime Paul, that oh. was going on while we were, uh, oh, while we were snoozing too. And holy cow, the greens, what a... What a it's a mess. nest of vipers, and it's it's hard to believe. I mean, you know, enemy Paul only won the leadership with about 53 54 percent of, of the vote, um, which tells you right there that almost half of the people didn't vote for her in her own party. So, there's probably you know, there's clearly bad feelings, and I think there's a, a leadership style issue going on as well. I mean, and again, it's, you know, like Jody Wilson-Raybould, it's really easy for people to say, no, 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 it's it's because she's black. No, it's because she's Jewish. It's because she's, you know, a bunch of things uh, that this is. But I really think this transcends all those sorts of things. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are people who are, you know, not, I don't know necessarily in the Greens, whether or not those things, uh, you know, whether or not those prejudices are, are any more front and center than they are anywhere else. But, um, but there seems to be a real personality problem where she has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And they have really, you know, to the point where they're not going to give her money uh, or they haven't decided yet that they, uh, but there's a proposal that their funds be withheld about a quarter million dollars. So she can take another run in, in the Toronto riding that she has lost two times now, uh, last time to, uh, to Marcy, uh, I think it's EO, IO, who Ian? Used, who, Ian, Ian, who yeah. used to be on the social. And I, you know, and you and I talked about her on a previous podcast about Marcy, and they're like, 
I'm not sure. Um, yes, she's a, a name recognition if you're someone who has nothing to do between between one o'clock and two o'clock in the afternoon. Hey, uh, you know when it's on. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I, I would be I would be lost. <laughs> oh, it's not it's not the same without Marcy. Let me tell you that. Um, but the uh, uh, but you know she couldn't. You know, I would have thought Marcy was probably your your the person you'd want to be up against if you wanted to win a riding uh but uh because you know she took over from Marno. um yeah, and, and you know, she's not in his class she's no an enemy Paul lost against Marno and then lost against marcy and you know i think there are people going like do we want to throw another quarter million dollars at this or maybe maybe you should find another riding or you know maybe maybe we're just tired of you because her leadership style seems to have like i say rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and it's 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 decimated uh, the greens if that's possible because I mean they are polling so so low in Canada right now that they're uh, I mean I'm sure the NDP is thrilled that they're polling as low as they are and all this is going on because you'd guess that most of the green votes uh, will split the NDP um, so I'm sure they're cheering from the sidelines but um, it's uh, they're just not going to be a factor in this uh, this next election and it's hard to tell if they'll actually be able to come back. Yeah, it's I this all came to the fore as a result of the clash between Israel and uh, Palestine. Well, Israel and Hamas, more or less. Isn't that as, where it all starts? <laughs> yeah, it's and, and it. she put out a statement that was fairly neutral uh, towards both parties. And there were people in her party who wanted her to, to go all in for uh, the Palestinian side and and they were very angry that she didn't. And her her executive assistant put out uh, a post that was completely irresponsible, saying that, you know, basically they're going to chase out people from the party who aren't Zionists. And it was completely, it was outrageous. It, it was beyond the pale. And she didn't fire him. And I think had she fired him, this could have been put to bed a little bit. Uh, but because he and clearly if he's putting a statement out like that to the public god knows what he's saying behind closed doors and within the party apparatus he seems like somebody who is very much a loose cannon and standing beside behind him really rubbed off on anime paul it also made people question her judgment that she would keep somebody like this on staff who very clearly uh, was impolitic in his public statements. So, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd, absurd in a way that an issue that the Greens aren't even engaged in, a foreign policy issue uh, in another part of the world is something which has led to them turning into compost. And yeah, there's probably issues with Anime Paul's leadership style uh, just the fact that she would keep this EA indicates there's something in her style that it, she, she's not able to read the room, it sounds like. And as a leader, you don't want to follow, you want to lead, but you also have to read the room. You have to figure out which way it's going, how you can adjust it, how you can, how you can harness that, how you can lead. And I don't think she's done that. Um, I don't think that it's because she's Black or she's Jewish. I think that there is... A, it appears to me that there is a, a, a factor of anti-Semitism, uh, certainly anti-Israel sentiment in the Green Party, which I find disturbing. But 
I don't I think this is this is largely because of missteps by Annamie Paul as well as people waiting with with knives for her back. I think that you know usually political leaders don't win a huge plurality of votes in leadership conventions because they they get fractured. There's so many candidates. But her win was very much a squeaker. And rather than, it doesn't speak well to the Green Party that they didn't all close ranks behind her, but they kept nursing wounds and nursing grudges. And that is not how a political party wins power or in their case, increases its seat count. You know, you take your lessons from the Republicans in the United States who I find completely odious and without principles, but when they close ranks, they close ranks. There, it's not like the, the Democrats uh, or the liberals here who infight all the time with competing interests. The, the right wing, like, they close ranks around each other and they hold their nose and they praise the current leader and they toe the line. And they, in the US, they've had tremendous electoral success as a result of that. In Canada, it's a different story. You keep reading about the polls showing poorly for Aaron O'Toole, and that's because they don't have a message. We'll get to that later. But yeah. uh, I don't think that it's easy to point to this as being uh, because she's black and Jewish. I think those are distractions. Um, I don't think those are the actual root cause of the problem in the Greens, because if they were a problem, she wouldn't have been elected leader even by a narrow margin. Yeah. And the thing about her, too, is, I mean, she really is a political animal. I mean, you'd think she'd have much better political instincts because, you know, she started off at age 12 as a page in the Ontario legislature and then uh, became a page in the Canadian Senate. Um, uh, she was an interim for, for, the, for the progressive conservatives in 1996 and also for the liberals. I'm not sure how that worked. Um, and, uh, you know, she was uh, she interned for Dominic Agostino. Um, uh, during uh, the uh, leadership convention uh, between Gerard Kennedy and not between Gerard Kennedy and uh, um, oh, I forget who that was who uh, uh, Gerard Kennedy there's a name from the past who disappeared. yeah but what's why I looked him up the other day and to see and he's doing some foundation -y kind of stuff but you know she wanted to get involved in that and then you know so she's got this this political background I mean she also you know she has a law degree you know not not that you know that's that's any particular qualification, but a Master of Public Affairs degree from Princeton. So, you know, this is someone who looks like they went out very deliberately and built a life that was leading towards politics. You know, it's like, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've this, you know, and now I'm the leader of this party. And then it's like, well, how, how did you screw that up? Because you've been training for this your entire life. Um, you know, but, you know, I'm sure uh, if she were ever to come on our podcast, she would say, you know, it's, it's not me, it's other people who've, uh, you know, thrown a, a monkey wrench in the works here. Uh, but uh, anyway, it just, you know, it's a real, uh, it's a real mess. And it's hard to see how the Greens are, are going to bounce back out of this. They and, would need a very magne magnetic leader, a very dynamic leader in the mold of a, a Jack Layton for them to be able to pull out of this. They've, I, I can't see anyone except diehard Greens voting for them at this point because they seem in such disarray and they're fighting each other. 
they're not going to be a convincing place to park your vote. Unless, of course, green issues are the only things you care about. No, and I, and I think you know the same problem with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, you know, or any independent and and you know a, a green MP, uh, you know, if she was successful, or even you know the, the the MPs that have been successful in the past. I mean, she had the defection as well from the Greens as as well, which was kind of embarrassing, you know, a, a month ago. Uh -huh. But uh, you know, people like to elect members of Parliament, members of the legislature. Who are able to do something for them who are able to if you call them up and you, you've got a problem that they have aligned to the government uh or at least the you know the resources of the opposition to be able to deliver services to to constituents and if you're a green uh, or if you're uh, an independent like uh, jody wilson raybould you don't have access to all that apparatus. You don't have access to party, you know, party resources, as, you know, as an official party, which gives you research money and staff and all that other good stuff. You're really bootstrapping it. And, you know, I think a lot of people look, you know, especially if you're in, uh, in Toronto uh, center, you're going like, ah, sure, it would send a, a real sort of virtue signaling message to say, you know, we've sent a green MP. To, uh, to parliament. However, um, he or she is not gonna be able to do anything for us, you know, when we need a problem, you know, problem solved. Um, and I think some voters, not all voters, but some voters go like, yeah, I really want somebody who, uh, who wields a, a bit of stick in Ottawa, who can look after us and an independent or a green MP is not one of those people. You know, it's sad that it's that way, but you know, that, that it is that way. Well, I mean, once you're independent or you're in a tertiary party, your strength, your focus has to be constituency work because you're not working on anything writ large. You're not on, maybe you're on committees, but who listens to you? Uh, you have no say in the real opposition's position. Uh, you have no say in the government's position. So you're pretty much just an observer. You might as well be sitting in the gallery. Um, and if you, then have to rely on you know doing constituency work but you don't have the relationships to work for your constituency then you're really just a lame duck yeah yeah and and it's uh, you know it, it, it's a sad feature of, of our system but you know that that is our system well uh, you know our i look at uh, the system to the south of us the american system and our system is so much better <laughs> It's just, oh, well, yeah, it's I mean, for all, for so all of its better. problems, it is. Yeah. It's, and I uh, look at the, the I look at the uh, government structure and the electoral structure in Israel. And I'm like, no, thanks. We don't need any. We don't need uh, proportional representation. Thank you very much. What we have here seems to be working. Let's leave it as is. Uh, I know there's some people who will be upset about that, but. Yeah. Uh, but even, even in a minority situation, as we've been through for the last couple of years, you can still get still, still get stuff done. You still get yeah. legislation passed. I mean, you have to, you know, you might have to compromise a little bit, but it's not like, uh, you know, the United States with their, their filibuster rules. And, uh, you know, even, you know, when you have an evenly split, uh, um, you know, um, house in, in the in the U.S., you can't get anything done. It just, uh, it, it just, uh, you know. Well, their, their system, their system leans towards gridlock it's it was designed to force them to work together but unfortunately i think that the drafters of the foundation papers of founding papers of the united states uh, were more poets than they were politicians in many ways they had very lofty 
ideas of the kind of people that would be drawn to public service. And I don't think they'd be too happy if they saw what was going on now, because that's for that system to work. It it relies on people of uh, goodwill and people willing to work towards the, the greatest, the greater good, as opposed to their own electoral good. Yeah, and it was designed for a very, very small. I mean, you know, it was done while there were 13 states. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and not a great deal of population, and they were geographically very close together. And so it was more like a club. You know, government was was much more like a club than it was like a, a, a massive uh, bureaucracy the way we have, you know, and they didn't, the government didn't do much back then either. It, uh, because, there, you know, we didn't have any social services and it was, you know, they didn't have a lot of taxation power. So the government didn't have to do an awful lot. So, it, you know, it fit that time, you know, over 200 years ago. Uh, but uh, you know, as it, the world gets uh, gets bigger and uh, countries get bigger and com- issues get uh, more complicated, it it just doesn't seem to be working for them anymore. You know, our system has been able to adapt reasonably well. I mean, it's again not perfect, but our parliamentary system. Uh, you know, there's people who still. You know, we'll go on about proportional representation and other forms of 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 government within a parliamentary system, but uh, you know, as as maybe working better, and that's a debate for another day. But you know, on the whole, the system works reasonably well. It's stable. It moves forward, and uh, you know, you don't have you don't have an awful lot of craziness that goes on in government. It tends to be fairly you know peace, order, and good government. As long as you don't listen to Charlie Angus. <laughs> I like Charlie. Well, I, you know, yeah, Charlie, um, Charlie on Twitter is something. Um, it's, yeah, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Um, interesting story that you're going to tell us, uh, that where a lawyer hired a PI to tail a judge. Yeah. And it came out, you know, I saw it on Twitter, uh, the other day, cause I was, I sort of follow, there's a group called the justice center for constitutional freedom, which, you know, should send up red flags oh, yes. all over the place. As soon as, you know, they're talking about, you know, it's when freedom's in your title, it's like, Oh, okay. Where are these guys are coming from? They've been around for a while and they are, they're based, uh, <clears throat> in, in, in the Western provinces. Um, no surprise there in Alberta, uh, <laughs> Manitoba. And, you know, and they've been on my radar for a little while. Actually, I did a, a, a radio show with a radio host out in uh, Kamloops uh, a little while ago. And we talked about them in the context of some constitutional challenges that they were bringing, including this, uh, this one, which was a constitutional challenge that's brought by eight different fundamentalist churches in Manitoba against the uh, COVID uh, restrictions on the size of their congregations. And they said mm-hmm. it, it, it violates their charter rights to a freedom of religion and freedom of association, a couple of other things. And, you know, I can tell you, you know, spoiler alert, most of the courts that have uh, ruled on this in the past uh, issue have said, this is a reasonable restriction on your freedom of religion and association, because by the way, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So it's a loser of a case. And the thing about the justice center for constitutional freedom is they take a lot of these constitutional challenges to things um, on on the right and generally on the very religious side of things uh, that you look at you look at the case you know I look at it as a lawyer and go like well that's a loser um, I mean that's that you, you really have to ignore 25 30 years of charter interpretation 
to come to the conclusion that they want and the odds that uh, they're going to be successful are pretty slim. And if you look at their case history, uh, they have a website and they actually put their cases in there and they lose an awful lot of cases. Uh, they, they, they fundraise, they fundraise the way, you know, they go fund me's and have sponsors and all that kind of stuff in order to, to pay the fees. So, uh, so they, and the, um, the, um, the operational head of it was uh, a lawyer by the name of John Carpe who yeah, has, has been around for a while. And uh, he was taking the lead in this case of these eight fundamentalist uh, Christian churches that were complaining about the COVID uh, closure rules. And in the middle of the case, um, it was being presided over by the Chief Justice of Manitoba, uh, Court of Queen's Bench, Manitoba. So Chief Justice, top judge in the province, um, you know, right below in, in terms of judicial hierarchy, right below the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, he, the judge stopped the case, called everybody in and said, I'm being followed by somebody. Mm. Somebody followed me from my, the parking lot of the courthouse to my house, got some little kid to ring the bell and ask if this was in fact my house. And then a car followed me all the way to my cottage. So what's going on here? My goodness. And, uh, and, and John Carpe, who is the lawyer representing the, uh, I think he's called, he, he's a lawyer in both Manitoba and in, in, uh, in Alberta, uh, admitted that he had hired a private investigator to follow the chief justice of Manitoba around to see if he was breaking COVID protocols himself. Now, it begs the question of, okay, if you, and he wasn't, but begs the question of if they had found that he, you know, forgot to put a mask on when he, uh, you know, went, went, went through the drive-through. Uh, what would the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom have done with that information? Now, would they try to embarrass the judge? Would they try to blackmail the judge? Would they just, would they publicize it? I mean, how, how would that, what would they have done with that information? None of, none of these things are good things to do to a judge uh, because, <laughs> and I'll, I'll digress a little bit because when I was a practicing lawyer, I, uh, I was doing a trial and the judge looked at the other side. It was a, it was a matrimonial case and I was representing the wife. The husband was representing himself and the judge looked at the husband and said, um, I've seen you recently. And the husband's like, huh, what, what? And he goes, yeah, you followed me in your car from the parking lot of the courthouse and you drove beside me and behind me and, and chased me basically down the highway. What, what this guy thought he would do uh, by chasing this judge, I have no idea if he's intimidating him or he was just, you know, had a screw loose. And I, I, this is the first I'd heard of it. I'm sitting there just going, well, what? And, and not my client, it's, you know, it's a guy yeah. who's representing himself. And the judge said, you know what? Um, that's contempt of court. Bailiff arrest that man. Wow. And he did. He just uh, put the cuffs on him right in front of me and, uh, and let him off to the pokey. So, you know, Mr. Carpe apologized. Uh, he never really said what he was going to do with the information, but he did admit that, you know, he was trying to catch the judge uh, breaking COVID rules himself as he sits on a case about COVID rules. Right. And... Um, and has since resigned as the as the as the, the the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom. The case is going ahead, 
And I suspect that, you know, the judge didn't do what my judge did, which is just arrest him and throw him in jail for contempt, because because it clearly is contempt of court to be intimidating or, or yes. any, any messing with a judge is not something any lawyer is supposed to do. Um, um, but, you know, he said, like, OK, it's not going to influence my decision. I'm going to still hear the rest of this case and rule on it. Um, uh, you know, I accept your apology, but, you know, this is pretty serious. And I suspect that he didn't throw him in jail because he didn't want to taint the case. Um, he wanted to rule on it. And he figures that there are other mechanisms. I know the, the, uh, the news has reported that the police are looking into whether or not this was obstruction of justice or attempted obstruction of justice, which is serious. And, you know, as a lawyer, we'll get you disbarred. Or there's the other side of things, which is uh, there's been complaints to the Manitoba and the Alberta law societies who regulate the legal profession. And uh, he, I'm, I'm sure almost certainly will be pulled in front of a disciplinary hearing uh, where he might also lose his license to practice law. Um, so this is, you know, this is just a bizarre, bizarre case because in Canada, the administration of justice is one of the things that we're incredibly proud of, that they are above politics, that they're above favor, that they are, you know, it's almost a priesthood um, in Canada. Um, you know, unlike the United States where they're elected and they have political affiliations that they wear on their sleeves and, mm -hmm. and, and they rule based on, on their politics, not on the law. Uh, in Canada, that doesn't happen or it happens so rarely that it's not even worth mentioning. So, you know, this, this, was, this was a big deal. And I say the Constitutional Center, uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, um, like I say, I thought they were kind of, my personal opinion was they took marginal cases and they lost an awful lot of them. Everyone's entitled to, to legal representation. That's a feature of our law. But I, you know, one of the, one of the things that was, I thought was the best service I could render to my clients when I was practicing law was to tell them when they had no case. Um, you just say like, don't waste your money. Don't waste it on me. Don't waste it on anyone else. This is a loser. You're going to lose this case. Um, they seem to joyfully take up these political cases and, you know, with much fanfare and press releases and all the rest and then lose them. So anyway, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I'm, I'm sure that these churches are going to uh, be ruled against because all the case law says this is a perfectly valid um, and reasonable limitation on freedoms under the charter because we're under a pandemic, it's temporary, and it applies to everyone, not just religious organizations. So it's not curtailing your religion. You can go worship your God on Zoom or whatever you like. Um, you know, we're just saying, you know, you shouldn't get together and cough all over each other um, for public health reasons until this is over. Anyway, so that was another little story that just sort of that's you know, a it, it, very uh, odd case, very yeah, strange. It, it sounds almost like a uh, like an episode of a television show, but you it's, know, it's too interesting to be an episode of a Canadian television. <laughs> it would have to be one of those Netflix ones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That that's very strange. Um, speaking of strange, this is not the first time we'll be going into an election. And, and let's face it, we are going to be going into an election in the fall. Um, this is not the first time in my life that there's been uh, an election without any overriding issue, but I think that's the case this time around, that there will be no um, particular issue that draws the most attention. I think that uh, this is going to be a steady-as-she-goes kind of election, where people will, according to the polls, 
reward the liberals for their handling of COVID with an increased seat count, perhaps a stronger minority, perhaps a majority. The, and the problem with there being no defining issue is that the opposition parties have nothing to cling to either. And while Jagmeet Singh is following you know, NDP tradition of saying what they will do when they're elected and all of his stuff are, you know, all these things are flights of fancy. Um, he's got the NDP playbook for that. The conservatives, interestingly, have nothing. They've not put forward any particular vision. The notion of, I want you to see a conservative in your mirror actually sounds vaguely frightening. Uh, and it's not, it's not an election platform. Um, we, we can do better than Trudeau is not an election platform. There, this is going to be a, this is going to be probably an election with a very poor turnout, which typically favors the incumbent. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, we do have, we do have a, a fixed, the Canada Elections Act provides for fixed dates for elections. This is something that Harper brought in. It's a real kind of, it's, it, it was supposed to eliminate the, the so-called advantage that uh, a sitting party has in being able to time the election according to polls and, and events and all the rest of the stuff. So the next fixed election date isn't until October 16, 2023. Now, um, could the liberals find an excuse to call an election? Uh, you know, again, it's not, I don't know what's going on. I mean, you know, they've, they've dared the opposition a couple of times to defeat uh, important legislation. They ended up passing the last budget. Um, you know, and that is the typical time when you, uh, when you, uh, you defeat a government and call a new election. But the opposition parties weren't having any of that because they're, both of them are polling in the basement. Um, yeah, the uh, you know last poll I saw that uh, you know that uh, Trudeau was was the number one choice for for prime minister followed by not sure at yeah. 23 23 <laughs> percent uh, followed by uh, um, Aaron O'Toole at 20 percent and Jadmeet Singh at 14 percent um, so with those kinds of numbers you can see why the opposition isn't jumping to have an election so they're just kind of nibbling away at it. And, you know, there may be some blowback if the liberals call an election that that isn't due yet. Um, you know, a lot of it depends on how COVID rollout is going, uh, whether or not you can physically get to the polls, if you can have events, uh, you can, you know, go door to door and talk to people on the doorstep, you know, all these things that are common features of, of, of our election. Yes. And if there are, you know, if there's a third wave, a fourth wave, a fifth wave, uh, then you're not going to be able to do that. So everyone's going to want to continue to coast along. Um, but you know, there may be some blowback if, if the liberals say, ah, you know, sc screw the fixed election date. We're just, we've decided to do that. Um, you know, there could be repercussions at the at ballot box for people who, who don't want to have an unnecessary election. And usually that goes against the government that does that, as David Peterson found out. Um, oh, yeah, the, the wheels fell off of that. Yeah. And, you know, and you know, he was a good, he was a good premier of Ontario and, you know, everything was going for him, but people really resented, you know, what they saw as the cynicism of calling an opportune election well before it's time. And again, you know, we're two years 
uh, and a bit ahead of schedule for an election if they were to call it, even though we're in a minority government. Uh, but like you say, there, there really isn't an issue to hang this on. I mean, the vaccination uh, you know, uh, procurement has gone a lot better. You know, all of the newspapers and opposition parties were yapping and yapping, yapping about this crappy vaccination procurement process of the federal government. Now, all the provinces were taking you know shots at uh, at the federal government as well over vaccination procurement. And now they're you know now they're everyone's awash in vaccines, and they're complaining that you know we've got too much vaccines, uh, and we're hogging vaccines, and uh, uh, you know it's that that issue kind of fizzled because Canadians are going like, oh yeah, it did work out pretty well. Um, you know, especially when you see what's going on in a lot of other countries. You know, Canada is now one of the leading first and, and second dose countries in the world. And with, you know, some of the lowest rates and some of the ones that were being held up as these great examples, you know, Israel and England and, and places like that, they're now going through terrible times because they opened too early and uh, they're, you know, they're, they're now experiencing, you know, a terrible, uh, you know, third wave. So Canada's done really, really well. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the federal liberals have done really, really well. Uh, managing that portfolio. So that election issue is gone. The economy that you know, as soon as you know people start getting out uh, is roaring back. You know, they're starting to go on about, oh, the cost of living has gone up. Well, it, it turns out it was a blip. Um, you know, they're complaining that the cost of lumber has skyrocketed. You can't afford to build anything. Well, it's now corrected itself. And the cost of lumber, you know, the supply is now there and the cost of lumber has gone way back down to where it was pre-pandemic. So all these little issues that they were kind of using as bread and butter issues that would catch public attention, they've all just fizzled. Um, I expect the economy to do really, really well uh, the next little while as people get back to work and start spending money like drunken sailors. I mean, I intend to, as soon as I'm able to uh, get out and do something. Um, so I think a lot of people, you know, we're gonna see a big boost over the next year in the economy. So, What's to complain about at this point? I mean, you know, the indigenous uh, portfolio uh, file uh, has been tragic and ongoing and will continue to be ongoing because there are a lot of unmarked graves or, or, or at least uh, forgotten graves out there that will continue to be discovered every two weeks for the next year and a half. And that's just the sad truth of, of, of the situation. But people are, I think are starting to realize that of all the parties, uh, you know, the, you know, the liberals have not been perfect, but they seem to be committed to uh, reconciliation with indigenous groups. And, you know, they've, they've raised, uh, they've, uh, they've lifted the boil water advisories on, 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 oh, on, on so many, I, mean, it, I was amazed to see the number. I mean, new boil water advisories happen because, um, because, because things happen because you have flood waters, you have pollution, you have, you know, all kinds of issues. So new ones pop up, but they've done a great job, I think, of addressing those. Um, and certainly better than, than any government in living memory has done on those sorts of things. They've handled that file, I think, as sensitively as they possibly can. And then, you know, naming a new governor general, uh, Mary Simon, um, who is uh, Inu, and uh, you know, they tried to make an issue of that. I saw, you know, the, the, you know, the, the block was saying, well, she doesn't speak French. It's like, well, but, but she, she speaks, um, she speaks the, the native language of, of, of the Inuit, uh, which is more than I can do. And, uh, you know, and she's, she's Aboriginal. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, people on the other side, I, I saw some people in the NDP who are going on and on about how this great voice, this Mary Simon has been silenced now, because as governor general, 
general. She can't uh, she can't pronounce on on issues uh, of the day, and you know she's she's been politically neutered because of the ceremonial role. And say, well, what do you pick a lane? Which one do you want? Do you want to see you know, um, indigenous people advance to senior positions in government, whether they're ceremonial or functional, or not? Because you know you can't have it both ways. You can't say, look, you know she's got this great job, but she's been silenced. Um, so I think, I think people are feeling generally better about the way the, the response has been to the, the, the ongoing crisis of, uh, of, um, you know, the missing, missing and murdered, uh, indigenous women and, and, and recently the residential schools issues and the, uh, the discovery of, uh, of forgotten graves. So it's, uh, I think, you know, Again, they haven't been able to lay a hand on them, and again, no one's putting up any kind of uh, alternatives. I saw Jadmeet Singh had a uh, had a, a four point platform that he came out with the other day, and he's touting all over the place. And it's it's um, you know Dale Dale Smith, who who, who I love uh, to follow on Twitter, um, he points out that the NDP job plan uh, relies on promises that are at the provincial level. Um, you know, we, yeah, we're... it's 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 very interesting how during his tenure as leader, Jagmeet Singh ha has blurred the lines between federal and provincial responsibility in his claims of or in his, his demands of certain programs being enacted. It's it's common for him to to insist the federal government do something that is actually within provincial jurisdiction. And I think he knows that most people don't know the difference or don't even believe there is a difference. And so it gains some traction. But I, I also wonder, is this the NDP party apparatus that is telling Singh like, to, to basically copy the position of the conservatives in some cases, in other cases, simply to be misleading? Um, or is it Singh himself who's choosing to do those things. I, I can't be sure. Um, I think that uh, Singh is a bit of a, as the, the conservatives called Trudeau, a shiny pony. You know, he's, he's an attractive man. He dresses very well, uh, well put got together. Got a haircut and a shave. Yeah, and well-spoken. Uh, you know, he's, so he, he, he looks the part. He simply doesn't speak the part or act the part as far as I'm concerned. Now, here's a question for you. Considering everything is basically hunky-dory in a say, you know, as much as it can be, what issue could the liberals use to inspire a non-confidence vote? What legislation? Because that, that legislation that is defeated would be the legislation they're going to take with them as a centerpiece in their election campaign. What, what piece of, of, of legislation do you think they could create that would be so unpalatable to the opposition and yet something they could sell well to the Canadian public. Yeah. And, you know, and my answer is, I don't know, because, you know, typically, you know, you'd come, if you were going to have an election, you'd come back from the summer recess, a uh, new session of parliament and you have a throne speech and you set out a bold agenda, whatever that is. Um, you know, they talked about, Pharmacare. I mean, you know, and again, the Liberals are making are starting to make announcements about uh, the childcare um, um, co cooperation with the provinces. Mm -hmm. They've had two. Uh, they've had BC and uh, they've had uh, is it Nova Scotia, 
for New Brunswick uh, come on, on uh, online with it. Um, and they're getting provincial premiers to start to agree to co-fund with the federal government this $10 a day daycare, which is, which is massive. I mean, that will, I mean, the, uh, you know, anyone who has kids, uh, you know, men or women are going to find that this is going to make a major difference in their lives um, if it's, if, if and when it gets implemented. And they're starting to get provinces on board. There's an interesting, there's an interesting rumor that was going around earlier in Ottawa earlier, apparently, that, uh, that Stephen Harper has been calling up conservative premiers across Canada, telling them not to go on board with the daycare thing, because they know it's so popular uh, that uh, you know, it'll guarantee the federal liberals uh, uh, the, the election. Um, and they're actually trying to, you know, he's actually trying to discourage uh, conservative premiers from, from signing up. But the problem is it is incredibly popular and it's a real winner for, uh, for, for everybody. But uh, like I say, but, you know, but mostly, you know, they see it as a win for the federal liberals. But, um, you know, you, you come back, I mean, maybe it's pharmacare. I mean, we've talked about, you know, what, what might be on the liberal wish list. And, you know, some things have been on the wish list for, you know, it could be dental care. I mean, there, there could be all kinds of things. Again, you got to worry about crossing over into provincial lines because a lot of it has to, you know, the, the yeah. um, you know, the constitutional authority for a lot of the stuff is provincial and it depends on negotiating with the provinces to be able to implement a lot of these sorts of uh, um, services that are being provided directly to, to Canadians. Um, the other thing that, that the federal liberals have to worry about is if they do bring in something that is, you know, specifically to sour the milk, you know, you're looking for a non-confidence vote. You need something that the Canadians will, uh, Canadians will get behind and also Quebec will get behind because, you know, the bloc is not necessarily you know, it's voted with the uh, the liberals on a lot of legislation, but there are some things they've been pretty unhappy about. And so you can't do, you know, you can't bring in um, any kind of legislation that is offensive to the block, um, but is offensive to the uh, to conservatives or and or the NDP. And that's, you know, that, that, that Venn diagram gets very, very small after a while. Yeah, of, yeah, it does. What you can do that will uh, that will not piss off the block, but will make the conservatives think it's a, a good thing to defeat the government on. Well, I guess we will wait and see. The you know you've somewhat convinced me that it'd be very difficult for them to actually have an election now. But I know, but Trudeau got to shave. So, I mean, as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, there's an election coming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank, you know, thank God he got rid of that beard. Um, but well, that uh, was the serious beard. That was the serious. Well, that was the beard to make you forget about, uh, you know, the uh, SNC Lavalin and the stuff before. Yeah. He was a different person with the beard. And now, you know, he, he's, he's retired the person with the beard and he's back to being the clean shaven guy. Uh, but uh, well, now but, this is his let's party face. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Well, that's not, his not message to Canadians. Yeah, we don't want to party too hard because, you know, that gets you into trouble too. <laughs> All <laughs> right. That has been our show. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for uh, filling us in on everything and sharing your opinions and your knowledge as always. Hey, it's, it's good to be back with you. And we'll be back again next week. Stephen can be found on Twitter at Stephen Lawton's, which is at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Uh, and we've got a Facebook page if you'd like to participate there. But I definitely encourage you to follow Stephen on Twitter. Always informative and entertaining. So Stephen, we'll talk again next week. Looking forward to it. All right. This has been Stephen and Stephen. I'm Stephen Kersner. Thank you for listening.